A brain treats love kind of like heroin. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. Heartbreak hits us all at some point in life. I remember watching a Guy Winch TED Talk after a breakup, and it's now had 28 million views, so there's a lot of broken hearts out there. In this conversation, we'll dive into relationships, loneliness, and failure, things which affect all of us at some point in life. This will be a journey into the power of emotional hygiene, bouncing back from failure, and harnessing the power of self-compassion. When I started off my career at 16, I was a model, and loneliness for me was a constant feeling. But this was you know, nearly 15 years ago. And loneliness just wasn't spoken about back then. Mental health wasn't really spoken about back then, especially in English culture. So I never really understood what loneliness meant. I just felt that I was on this constant conveyor belt, meeting new people, but never really developing those deep relationships. That is so important. How can people recognize and address feelings of loneliness? Let's start with what the definition is the definition of loneliness is a subjective feeling of disconnection mm. a subjective feeling that the people around you don't see you truly don't get you don't fully appreciate you which they can't do if they don't see you and it's also related to what your expectations are if you were stranded on a desert island and there were three other people there and you were really close to two of them, you might be fine. Um, but in regular life, when we're surrounded by virtually thousands of people and hundreds of people in our friends lists and all of that, um, there's a real acute pain to feeling that no one really gets you, no one really sees you. So it's subjective. It has nothing to do with how many people you come in contact with because it's not about quantity, it's about quality. And models, and I've worked with a few and I know a few, um, are, and especially young ones, are incredibly lonely because the irony is they are visually seen all the time and that's all that happens and no one is looking beyond skin deep to who they are. They don't feel they are seen for being a person. They are seen on the exterior, which is what the job is. But no one usually is taking the time to get to know them or to see them or to value them as people. And that it feels that way when you're around people who are looking at you and filming you all day and they know nothing about your inner life. It feels very mm. disconnected and it can feel very, very lonely. So one thing people need to understand is when you're trying to assess whether you're lonely, don't ask, are there people around me? Ask whether you feel seen, cared for, appreciated, whether you feel really connected to someone, whether when you talk to people, you walk, that loved ones, you know, they can be friends, family, whatever, colleague even, but when you walk away from conversations, feeling close, feeling touched, feeling good because, oh, I like that person, we're close, or whether you walk away feeling none of those things. And that will tell you whether it's loneliness or not. Mm -hmm. The person who you look up to a lot is your brother, who's your superhero, and you are part of an identical twin. And so immediately that makes me think, I'm sure Guy's never been lonely because he's got this amazing bond with an identical twin. But you have experienced loneliness, haven't you? And I'd love for you to, to talk about 
your journey with this from your TED talk mm-hmm. that I watched, which really, really stuck with me. I live in New York City. I first came to the United States to go to graduate school and, and I started a PhD program in psychology. And I was away from my brother really for the first uh, time. We had both served in the military, but but we had seen each other, we were much more in touch. And at the time, um, speaking of success, by any definition, we were quite unsuccessful in that we, we, we grew up quite poor. And so we didn't have any money to, this is before the internet, before Wi-Fi. Um, so call, international calls were extremely, extremely expensive. And we could afford roughly a five-minute conversation once a week, literally five minutes, which is not enough for any kind of sense of connection. But when I came, I was surrounded, A, by people in graduate school, and B, I was practicing to be a therapist, so I was having very deep conversations with my patients and with my colleagues, except they weren't personal about me. They were about the patient or about the work. So I thought, I'm surrounded by people, I'm having deep conversations. It didn't occur to me that I might feel lonely. And then when our first Mm -hmm. birthday came, that we weren't together, what happened was I, I was waiting for him to call, and the phone didn't ring. And um, again, these are not cell phones, these are rotary phones with dials and handles and their wires. It's just, you know, and the phone didn't ring. And I, and I thought, wow, he's, he's kind of probably gone out with friends and just kind of, it wasn't that important for him. And, and I went to bed feeling horrific. And um, I woke up in the morning and realized that I had kicked the phone off the hook, which made it impossible to get through. And so that's why he wasn't calling. And what was interesting is that when I put the phone back on the hook, it rang immediately and he was beyond pissed. He was, I could not reach you all night. And I was like, well, I was waiting for you to call. He was like, but I couldn't get through. And if you saw I wasn't calling, why wouldn't you call me? And it was an interesting moment because this is the person who, who you know, loves me unconditionally, always has his entire life. Mm-hmm. But when you're lonely, you feel so raw and you feel so risk averse and you feel so hurt by the universe not caring that you don't want to, you know, you, you don't want to take any risks. So I was like, I don't want to call him. What if I can't get through? What if I'm nudging him and I'll wait for him to prove to me that he loves me for some screwed up reason. This is my identical twin brother. Um, and and I, mm-hmm. it was so hard to explain to him why that that thinking was so off. I knew it when I was saying it. But he, he just mm-hmm. didn't get it. And, and when you look at the science of loneliness, that's what people find there, these distortions that go in in our head in which we convince ourselves that people don't care about us even when they do. And then we create these self-fulfilling prophecies to reenact it. And that makes us feel worse. So the damage of loneliness isn't just the raw pain that it produces, isn't just the suppression of your immune system and all kinds of other things we'll get to, but it really screws you up and mentally sets you up to reinforce the loneliness and to actually disconnect more rather than connecting. And that's why it's so dangerous. And that's, I imagine, how it can just kind of roll onto more extremes, like depression, because you are really starting to take a step back every time you have that emotional distress. And I I want to call it emotional distress because it it does feel like that, right? It's emotional pain is what we can call it. It's extremely, extremely painful tell me if this is wrong, but loneliness is as detrimental as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Chronic loneliness. In other words, it suppresses the function of your immune system. You have to remember, we Mm -hmm. are tribal 
animals. We evolved in nomadic tribes in which the tribe was our safety. We could survive within the tribe. We couldn't survive without it. And so the feeling connected was not just a psychological boon. It was literally survival. If you weren't connected to the people of your tribe, it meant that you were at the risk of being ostracized and therefore mm -hmm. you're at the risk of dying. So people's sense of connection was highly, highly associated with feelings of safety physically and otherwise. And when we don't feel connected, we have a lot of legacy of many thousands and thousands of years, which make us feel, you know, it's called, a, you know, the need to belong. When we don't feel that we belong somewhere, when we don't mm -hmm. feel seen, when we don't feel connected, we feel in danger. Our body goes into fight or flight. Our body reacts as if it's under threat. Our immune system gets suppressed because of all the stress that we feel. And then we're more susceptible to disease and to illness. So yes, it's a big deal physiologically loneliness. And one, we completely disregard, people aren't educated about it. It's the most basic thing that we know and we've replicated these things over and over and the public at large still doesn't know it. And as I'm listening to this, I think that I, I talk about a lot because of my own personal experience and the importance of me setting up um, my charitable organisation called the BY Collective, which is about bringing everybody together because I think I really lacked that and that was a sense of my own purpose was to come back and, and curate that because that's something that I really miss inherently. But as I kind of look at where we're evolving with AI and, you know, our cell phones, we're becoming less connected than ever before. We're not becoming more connected. We're becoming more virtually, electronically connected. But these are not actual connections. These are just, you know, if you have, you know, 500 people on your friends list, you haven't spoken to most of them in years. You know, it's not an active yeah. thing. It's more like, you know, like a collection of people to show your social worth that you know, here people are following me, whether I speak to them mm -hmm. or not. And <clears throat> excuse me, and I work with a lot of celebrities and they can feel very lonely as well, even mm -hmm. though they can just step out to the street and be mobbed by fans. It's not connected. There's not people who know them or who yeah. they know. So so that is is really important. And I had the great honor um, of being invited to speak at 10 Downing Street um, a year and a half ago and to talk with policymakers there about emotional health and what policies they could be enacting. And loneliness was one of the big things that I was trumpeting because I said, like, there is information we need to get out, mm -hmm. and especially to younger people. We, asso we associate loneliness with the older generation, somebody in an old age home. Yeah. The, the loneliness um, is actually not, they are not the most lonely cohort, and by far, it is the 18 to 34-year-olds, you're smack in the middle, um, who are um, most most lonely and are feeling most disconnected. Remember, there's an expectation and a comparison to it, so when you look at social media and see everyone's curated amazing lives, and you're mm. in that moment not doing anything and no one's calling you, it feels much worse than if you hadn't had exposure to that information. So there's, you know, social media fosters loneliness and especially when we use it passively and when we're feeling bad, we're not engaging with people on it, we're just scrolling voyeuristically, but that's going to make us feel like everyone's life is better, mine sucks. Completely. I mean, I could not agree with you more in that sense. And I think just because what we see someone is doing on social media, we forget to actually pick up the phone and call someone and ask them how they are or ask them what they've actually been up to because we think that we can see what their lives are on our friendship side. But actually, when was the last time that we spoke to our friend in a meaningful way? And I think that's such an important a thing that I've really realised. Sometimes it can be quite a scary place also to step forward and 
create new friends or create new relationships. So what is your advice here for the people that might be feeling lonely or disconnected? Thank you for listening so far. Now, I've been a customer of Arena Flowers for a very long time. So having them finally sponsor Live Well, Be Well is utterly amazing. And I have a special discount code just for you guys. A big part of my self-care routine is self-love. And having flowers around my home, like you can see in the background if you're watching this on YouTube, is the perfect way to achieve that. Arena Flowers are the UK's number one ethical florist. All their packaging is free from single-use plastics. So if you're ready to put a smile on someone's face and positively impact the planet, use the discount code LWBW50 for 50% off your first three subscription boxes. Make your first order now by clicking the link in the show notes. Now let's get back to the episode. Well, look, you're right. It's hugely scary. It's really terrifying to a mm. lot of people because you feel, again, so rejected. Not because somebody's actively rejecting you, but because passively it feels that way, because no one's checking in, no one's asking. If you think of what social media did, it substituted quality for quantity. In other words, you might be in touch with way more people on a superficial way, and so you'll be able to see much more of what's going on with people. But we are substituting that virtual connection to for an in-person one, the fact that we are seeing people in person less. And so that's more mm -hmm. connected. So it's not just that we are spending more time on our phones. We are doing that in lieu of seeing people personally. We're doing that instead of actual mm -hmm. personal conversations. And here's a question I get, which I just want to bring up because I get this extremely often. And that is, all right, let's say I see somebody in person. How do I have a connective conversation? And because uh, when we're feeling bad, we're going to go to the superficial, to chit-chat, mm -hmm. to small talk. does nothing in terms of connection. Connective conversation means emotionally connective, means there has to be some kind of emotional vulnerability, some kind of mutual reminiscing, some kind of expression of hopes or dreams or feelings that gets reciprocated, something more deep, more personal. And you want to do that very intentionally with the people that you're close to in your life, because that's what will make you feel close to them. It can even be a relationship mm -hmm. talk or a friendship talk about, hey, this thing bothered me, but I wanted to work it out because you're such a good friend. And that can be a tense moment. But if you resolve it well, when any dyad, friends, colleagues, couples, resolve conflict, it brings them, well, it brings them closer. They feel more connected. So any kind of form of deeper conversation of vulnerability is connective, but you have to be intentional about doing it number one. Number two, we have this bias like I had with my brother of thinking they don't care. I'm not going to reach out because they don't really care. They would have reached out to me. Well, they have busy lives. Stuff is going on with them too. So um, it's not that they don't care. It's you reach out. You have to be proactive when you're lonely and you have to take leaps of faith. These are emotional risks and they feel risky because you're reaching out to someone. And the thing that people have to be careful about is that you're feeling angry and resentful. This is a good friend. And, and you can reach out and say like, I haven't seen you in a month. And what you can mean is, oh, I haven't seen you in a month. But what it will read like to the other person is, I haven't seen you in a month. It'll read accusatory. Mm -hmm. And so that is off-putting. And so saying, I miss you, let's catch up, is much more inviting. And it's very 
dangerous to say I miss you to someone you're not sure misses you back. But if there's been a good history, if you've been close to that person, those are the risks you have to take. You have to be inviting and you have to get on a program of getting yourself out of this mental state because it's a dangerous, dangerous one. It increases the likelihood of an early death by 30-something percent over time. Wow. It's dangerous. You need, and that's why I'm so appalled that it's not just the UK. There is no government that educates their populace about this when, wow, why not? It's not that complicated and it's hugely important. Well, we're never taught about our emotions. And I think that can also hide in a lot of frustration with people. I remember when I broke up or I ended a relationship and I felt really frustrated in that moment. And my father, who isn't, he's not a psychologist, he's not profoundly giving advice, but I remember this so clearly, is that he actually said, I think the reason why you're hurting so much is that you feel like a failure. That was my emotional distress. And it wasn't that I wasn't hurting anymore, but things became clearer in that moment. And understanding that I felt like a failure allowed me to then try and reconstruct those feelings in a healthier way. So that is a crucial point and I want to if you don't mind just elaborate it because it's absolutely vital 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 what your father did there is he named one of the feelings that you had and the minute he named it you connected to that you go yeah I do feel like that the thing is that when we have a breakup say we probably feel 20 to 30 things When I ask people, well, how do you feel? I get primary colors. Um, Happy, sad, surprised, angry. We, those are strands. We feel in tapestries. Some strands are thicker, some not. I advocate to people truly, and I still use it myself, the emotion wheel. You can find examples of this online everywhere, and you will be shocked. And find ones that have, you know, at least 100 or 200 descriptions there. Because when I ask somebody, how do you feel? Now, don't just say what you feel the most. Anything that is on the dial, even if it's just a two out of 10, name that. And people go through and they go, oh, two here, four there, this one's an eight, oof, 10 on that one. And they can name 20 things. We don't, that doesn't Mm -hmm. occur to us. Why that's so important is because by teasing out what you're actually feeling, by naming it, literally, by having that emotional vocabulary, you are A, validating the feeling, which soothes it immediately. B, you are getting information about what that might tell you. Oh, I'm feeling like a failure. Am I taking more responsibility for that relationship than the other person? Or maybe there's also some embarrassment there because it was a public thing or not. And so maybe the failure was also like, it seems that way to other people and maybe partially to me, but really a failure in whose eyes, even that can use parsing. And so once we do that kind of work of understanding what we're feeling, which is so basic, and we don't do it, mm-hmm. you know, we don't, we're not educated to do it. That sets us on mm-hmm. the path for recovery because we can identify where the wounds are, what takeaways might be, what action items might be. If it's about embarrassment, then maybe I need to manage the talking points about this more. If it's about failure because I thought I could make this relationship work, I really need to look at why I'm taking all that responsibility because it does take two people. Why did I absolve the other? Like every conclusion you make can f- send you to other important avenues of of inquiry. And that's what will help you identify, repair, recover. And and that's emotional intelligence. That's what helps with resilience because you know yourself better. You can understand yourself better. That serves you better going forward. 
it's almost like the the first thing that has to happen is identify how you're feeling. It's so, so crucial. I love that you mentioned the emotional will because it's something that I use a lot and I find it so impactful. So I'd highly recommend anyone listening yeah. to this just to Google it and go and download it and have a look because you can realize how so many different emotions can intertwine as well. You speak a lot around failure and a lot around what that does to us. Could you talk about how detrimental that failure can be and how it can actually set us back from achieving certain goals in our day-to-day lives? Right. So failure is unpleasant. We don't like it. Mm. It's demoralizing. It's painful. It makes us feel bad about ourselves. It hurts our confidence. It's publicly awkward, um, potentially. Um, So failure is not a fun thing. The thing about it is we typically don't fail a thousand different ways in life. We have our blind spots or the things that we typically don't do that well. And we repeat those errors in endless variety. And so the point about failure is if you can figure out what went wrong, you might be able to figure out how to prevent a whole bunch of other failures afterwards if you know to like, ooh, I have to you know, pay attention to this part of it. And, and what people tend to do with failure is they find it so unpleasant that they become very self-critical. They don't say to themselves, oh, I should have studied harder. They say to themselves, such a loser, I'm such an idiot, why didn't I study harder? Now, the first rendition, I should have studied harder, is constructive. The second rendition, loser, idiot, why didn't I? Um, the loser and the idiot is just going to make you feel worse. It's going to make you not want to think about what happened because you're being so nasty to yourself. You're being so hostile mm-hmm. to yourself when you're already hurting, so it's completely unnecessary. And the hostility did nothing to emphasize the point of I should have studied harder. It actually distracted from it because now you're just feeling like crap. So the, the, the whole self-critical yeah. narrative we have is not helpful when we're trying to learn from failure because it's going to prevent us from learning. It's like when a parent screams at a kid, the message gets lost because all the kid notices is like, oh, they're really angry. Not like, oh, they have a really interesting point about my homework. You know, that's not what goes mm. on. And so when you're screaming at yourself or putting yourself down, that's what you're noticing, not the actual message. So the important thing is you can learn from failure And I say, approach it like a detective. Detectives go to a crime scene without emotion. They don't go, oh my goodness, look at the blood spatter on the wall. They just go, blood spatter on the wall. They don't need to put anyone down. They don't need to... So so take off the judgment of it. Just go and try and be as objective as possible. What could you do differently next time? What might have gone wrong? And do the due diligence and find Mm -hmm. the blind spots and make notes about how you avoid them going forward. It's not about trying the same thing harder. It's about trying the same thing differently or learning what you can do, you know, where you typically went wrong. And I promise you, where you went wrong, you go wrong a lot. So it's very useful to find. Absolutely. I think something that you you mentioned that, you know, shame is such a big part of failure. And I think it's something that we all suffer with, but we all sometimes just think that we're inherently a bad person because we failed. And as you just said, it's kind of, it's a missed opportunity for growth because if we can recognize these failures, then we can actually grow from them and actually something really positive can come out. But when we're in that moment of shame and that downward spiral that I think we all go to, I don't think there's any listener that's going to be listening to this podcast and doesn't resonate with that term. I mentioned about rumination earlier, and I think rumination here plays a really 
big, big part in the whole overall picture. How detrimental is that? I wanted to jump on in and take a moment to thank you for listening to the Live Well, Be Well show. It brings me so much joy to hear how stories on this podcast have helped you get the most out of life. And it's my mission to help even more people do the same. To achieve this, I need you to help me grow this show. So please share the link with a friend or maybe even drop it into the group chat. Unfortunately, um, we evolved to scan the horizon for danger. There was a huge evolutionary advantage for people who could spot danger. There was no advantage for people who could spot happiness because happiness is nice, but if you're passing along your genes, you pass them along whether you're happy or not when you procreate. Mm. Danger can kill you. And so that was, so we are much more prone to go toward the negative. We're much more prone to think negatively, we have evolved to find value in going over and over all the dangerous, iffy things that can happen um, in an effort to survive them, except that these are not survival issues. You know, whether you pass the exam is not a survival issue. It's not like the stakes are not what they are. And so we need to be able to think about it more adaptively. When people are ruminating about failure, they're spinning about the moment they failed, about what will people think, about arguing about it, about entirely unproductive ways of thinking. Productive ways of thinking about failure are, let me make a list of everything I can do differently next time. Let me make a list of what I really should have noticed that I didn't. Let me make a list of that time that I thought, "Mm, something's not going right, but I dismissed it. How did I justify dismissing it? Oh, I said to myself, it'll be fine. I need to watch out for when I say to myself, it'll be fine. I'm avoiding something. I'm closing my eyes to something. An example I give, by the way, is um, people who have uh, lateness issues. And I'm not talking about people who are late and don't care, because plenty of those. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about the people who are late and stressed out by it. And you see them stressed out all the time because they're late all the time. And you feel like, how have you not figured this out? If it happens three times a day, what, what keeps going wrong? You know? And what keeps going wrong are the, the blind spots. For example, people in the office, when patients would come and they'd be late repeatedly, I'd say, what's going on? And then I left on time and I'd be like, by definition, no, you didn't um, because you're late. <laughs> so uh, no, because something went wrong. I'm like, I know. Let's look at what you didn't account for, because that can go wrong again. And you know what it is often, let's say, in a city like New York? They don't account for the time it takes to get from their desk to the elevator, downstairs, outside the building. It can be two and a half minutes, three minutes, just that. You didn't account for it. There's two of them in a, in a, a, you know, return trip. That's six minutes right there, another three minutes to the subway. Here's already almost 15 minutes you haven't accounted for in your timing, because, no, 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 I'm right near the subway. It's still two minutes, still three minutes, still this... Anyway, my my point being, get curious without being self-critical and figure out your stuff and then fix it. When you're talking about that, there's so many people that are coming to my head around the lateness side. I think we can all resonate with, with people that are late in our lives, right? And the frustration that we have around it. But it's interesting because you mentioned um, in one of your talks, you were journaling for one week around how many times you ruminated throughout the day. I think it tallied up to 14 hours, if I'm correct. And you were like, that's 14 hours of my free headspace and free time 
that I have that is taken on rumination. And when I heard you say that, I thought, gosh, the amount of times that I sit there in the evening and I may be trying to switch off and watch TV or read a book. And actually, really what's going on in my head is I'm not present. I'm just engaging with all of the work stress that I've got going on or whatever is on my mind in that moment. So how can we detach in that moment? It's so much easier said than done, isn't it? Okay, so so first of all, yes, it could be 14 hours and I really challenge people to make note of all the time. And by ruminating, I mean that you're the fantasy arguments with a, with a friend that you're never going to have and replaying something for the 10th time and, re, you know, um, people are going to be shocked by how much time they spend doing it. And, and the thing is, this is time you should be um, recovering from the workday. And instead of recovering, you're obsessing about the workday often obsessing about friendships or obsessing about things that instead of relaxing, recharging, you're stressing yourself out. Because rumination activates mm. our stress response. So you're stressing yourself out. Just just to say something obvious, but I just want to say it because no one really says it. Um, if you break your leg and you think back on a time you broke your leg, one thing I can promise, your leg won't hurt. If you got really annoyed with someone, really aggravated, 10 years ago, and I ask you to tell me about the incident in detail, you will get super aggravated right now thinking about it. Re, when we recollect emotional experiences, we reactivate those experiences. This does not happen with physical ones. Um, but emotional ones, it does. And so you have to be a curator of your thoughts. You can't just let them be. I know this sounds really either like what or like basic, but I always say like the human brain might be the most brilliant machine in the universe. It requires adult supervision and your brain requires you to be in the supervisor role. You can't just let it do what it wants. It will usually do the wrong thing when you're in emotional distress. And so when you're ruminating or upset about something, it will have you spend 30 hours spinning around about something unproductively, stressing you out, getting you nowhere, making you feel helpless, increasing your risk of cardiovascular disease, creating sleep disturbances, making you eat unhealthy foods because you're trying to soothe the irritability that you're generating by yourself all the time, etc., etc. What you need to do, there's several things you can do. The simplest is the urge to ruminate about something is a little bit like a craving for nicotine for people who stop smoking or something like that. It comes in a wave. And so you just have to resist the wave. The research is that two to three minutes of concentration on a task in which you actually have to concentrate. So reading wouldn't do it, watching TV wouldn't do it, doing a jigsaw puzzle would do it. I do Wordle. It's, it's good for one rumination a day, but I'll take it. Anyway, because um, you only get one a day. I love Wordle. Yeah, but you only get one a day, so it's not the most practical for rumination because you know, you're done after five minutes and then the rumination occurs again and you're like, well, I'm out now. But a memory task, a simple memory of like, what is the order of songs in that playlist? What is the order of books on my shelf? What did I have for breakfast last Tuesday? That can take you two or three minutes. Two or three minutes of that concentration is enough for the urge to ruminate to pass. And then you want to then distract yourself with another task that's more pleasurable, number one. But number two, you want to convert a ruminative thought into a productive one. So if you're ruminating mm -hmm. about why did that relationship go wrong, a more productive approach to that would be, let me write down five takeaways from that relationship that I can take to my new relationship. If you're ruminating about a situation at work, let me define what the problem is and come up with three ways to address it convert the spinning, like emotional hamster wheel spinning, into something productive with takeaways that gives you perspective, that gives you understanding. That's a better way to deal. So it's all about problem solving, isn't it? A lot of that time, it's problem solving. It's actually trying to use the information. Yes, but not just, but reframing, for example, is also very good for mm. rumination. If you can reframe the situation, 
so that it's less toxic for you, the barb can be released in your brain that's kind of spinning and keeping you going around it. So for example, it's a relationship thing. If you can, you know, I tell people to make a list of all the ways the person wasn't right for you, all the compromises you make, because that can remind you, okay, it wasn't the most perfect relationship. It makes it a little less this. Or if there's a frustrating situation at work, now I have to stay and work over the weekend. What's the silver lining? Oh, but you know what? This is really important to the boss. At least I can get some brownie points with the boss. At least I can have FaceTime. So that might... It just makes it a little less aggravating so you can let the rumination go. You just mentioned there something that I really wanted to touch upon. It's relationships. Because this is how I first came across your work about, I think it was in 2019, you did your TED Talk, um, on how to fix a broken heart. If anyone hasn't watched that, please go and watch that TED Talk. And I actually sent that to a friend earlier today who's actually going through a breakup currently. But from your over 20 years um, experience in this sector, what are your main takeaways from how to fix a broken heart? Show yourself some love and buy some arena flowers today. I have made them a vital part of my own self-care routine. So don't wait for someone else to give you that. Use the code LWBW50 to get 50% off your first three subscription boxes. So what was interesting for me when I was working on that talk was that the research was very clear that when we are in love with someone, infatuated with someone, we're in essence getting addicted to them. And by us, I mean our brain. Because our brain treats love kind of like heroin. People joke about it, but the brain doesn't think that's funny because the brain is like, I don't see the difference. And um, the brain responds like they're the same thing. So when you get heartbroken, somebody just took away your heroin, your opioids, and you are in withdrawal. And the only thing that matters to you is getting that person back. The only thing that makes the world worthwhile is that there's nothing else that matters, much as somebody addicted to heroin, when they're in withdrawal, that is the only thing that matters. And they will go to amazing lengths and act extremely out of character and do desperate and not great things to get that fix, which is how many of us behave when we're heartbroken. Except if we don't know that that's what our brain is doing to us, we think we just went crazy. We think we're just Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, what's wrong with me? What's going on with me? I'm acting completely nuts. Yeah, because you're withdrawing. And if you know that at least, you can understand that urge and, and what your brain is doing. But if you know that also, you can understand that when you're withdrawing, a little bit more of the drug is not the best thing for you, you are trying to get unaddicted to this person. By definition, that means you're trying to reduce their presence in your thoughts, in your mind. You're trying to give them less stage time. And from that, everything else flows. And so rather than stalking them on social media, which, by the way, is going to hurt for all kinds of reasons, you're reinforcing the addiction. That's why the no contact Mm. rule, when it's possible, is so important. Because, again, just think of heroin. We get off heroin not by taking it intermittently, right? You have to go cold turkey or there's methadone, you know, in some ways to transition. But the point is you have to, you know, and and it's easier to get off that drug than it is off heroin, mind you. But at the beginning, the urge is, is very compelling. So you have to get off it, number one. And secondly... You have to understand that the drive 
the need to see their social media and do those things is going to set you up for whopping pain because if somebody broke up with you, they didn't start thinking about it the day they broke up with you. They started thinking about mm -hmm. it way before. And in longer-term relationships, people plan a breakup months, sometimes years in advance, and often out of consideration. Often because, well, it's New Year's, let's, I don't want to do that to them over the holidays. Or they had this big presentation at work, let's wait a couple of months, I don't want to screw them up before that. It's often out of consideration. But that means they're months ahead of you in the processing. Months. And so when you see on social media a week after the breakup, it's only a week later, and look at them, A, it's curated, but B, yeah, they've had months to get used to this idea, you're just mm. starting. But yes, it's extremely painful, it's a devastating experience, heartbreak. It's interesting how you say it, right? It's self-destructive, but so many of us still mm -hmm. do it, even in friendships. I'm even thinking about this as similar to friendship breakups, which I don't think enough people talk about. But I think we go through our lives and we have these really distressing moments where we grow apart from friendships and they break apart. And then we're always looking at, oh, where, what are they doing? Who are they speaking to? And it, it can feel, again, inherently really painful. So what are some tools that people can do to actually be proactive when they're going through these types of heartbreaks? So, so briefly, um, if you think of heartbreak as a form of grief, which it is, and a form of loss, which it is, then you have to grieve. So it's actually appropriate mm -hmm. to do some thinking about the relationship, just not rumination thinking. What you, the thinking you want to do, like I said, is you want to try and be objective about, here's what I got from that relationship, here's what I lacked in that relationship. Mm -hmm. Here's what I learned about myself. Here's what I learned about myself in relationships. Here's what I would want to do similarly next time. Here's what I would want to do differently. In other words, you have to rebuild after a loss. You have to refill the voids that were left by the relationship. You have to reconstitute, in a way, your sense of identity because you went from being a we to being an I, and that's kind of fundamental. You want to rebuild your social support system. You want to rebuild your, you know, and your bench of, of, of close acquaintances. You don't need every friend to be the one that can listen and validate. You want some friends that are not very good at that, but they're great at having a good time. You want friends who are great at just introducing you to people because they seem to know where all the parties are. You want a bench of different abilities and qualities you can draw on, and you need to spend time creating it, reconstituting friendships, redefining who you are in the world. These are all active processes. And something that I speak about, and I, I really believe in the importance of, is, is self-compassion. And I think it plays such a fundamental role, especially self-compassion and self-care in these moments. I think they play an essential role in day-to-day -day life, but especially during these moments. And are you able to kind of shed any light on this, on the importance of self-compassion? Because I think so many times we overlook this fundamental area, but actually I think it's so important. I will say um, to not just that I agree with you, but if there is one skill set I think can make the most difference in people's lives, self-compassion is the one you want to adopt. It is truly mm -hmm. the foundation of everything almost, because self-compassion means you are treating yourself with the same compassion, respect, that you would a dear friend or loved one in the same situation. By using self-compassion, we are actually, if you can use it consistently, I do. It's one of the things that I am most strict. How do you do it? Can you tell yes. me? How do yes. you do your self-compassion? I have, and this is what I suggest, come up with a voice of a person who's that good person 
to you, who will always say and tended to say the right thing to you. Um, they might be alive, they might be dead, they might be real, they might not be. It might be you in the future. In my case, <clears throat> it was easy to come up with uh, a voice. It was my twin brother because he's been so supportive. We've been mutually supportive all our lives. So if I want to think of what would somebody compassionate say, I just think of what he would say. But I literally imagine what he would say to me in any given moment. And a moment as small as, oh, I've been working for a few hours, I need a break, but I have so much to do. In comes his voice going like, but you also need to have a break because you really haven't had one. And I think it would be important for you to, to have a rest, even though I know you want to do this, but go give yourself a rest. You deserve it. Take half an hour at least. Da, da, da. Like, it's so important to, yes, I know this is very painful after the breakup, but you're already hurting. So let's remind you of, you know, everything you bring to the table. And so that self-compassionate voice can help you identify your mistakes after a failure and help you recover after heartbreak. And what it does over time is it reparents you because it is the voice of the ideal kind parent mm -hmm. none of us have. And so um, it's, it's suddenly that, you know, over time, it's like you have somebody in there who cares for you and is not giving you a break, is not saying, no, don't work. It's saying, I know it feels really hard to work right now, but you, you really need to, like, whatever the right constructive thing is, but with a compassionate voice. And over time, that is curative in so many ways, and it can be so powerful for emotional health. I'm delighted that that's so important for you and for your listeners, because I really believe it's, it's foundational. It is. And I think we have a, a toothbrush for our teeth, right? For our physical health. But we have nothing. We don't have a toothbrush for our mental health. And when I've said that to people before, it's kind of made them really stop and think, actually, how do I talk to myself? How do I look after myself? And I loved this line that I read from you where you said a hundred years ago people began practicing personal hygiene and life expectancy rose by 50% in just a matter of decades and I think if we had something around our emotional health how much more would our lifespan reach because we talk a lot around longevity and we talk a lot around biohacking and, and diet and nutrition and yes all of these things but our emotional health is so important because our brain is so powerful. So what are your three top tips on how we can have good emotional hygiene within our day-to-day -day lives? So number one, I just want to say to people who say, well, I don't have time for that. And I'm like, really? Well, stop ruminating. Take an hour off TikTok. You do. Um, there's no such thing. Uh, I don't have time. This is your like very basic. It's not just your emotional health. It's your happiness, your life satisfaction, your productivity. Everything's impacted. So if you don't have a little bit of time to improve your life, but you're wasting it on things that don't, don't not buying that. So let's start with self-compassion as a number one uh, practice to adopt. I would adopt a gratitude practice um, as a number two. And that means journaling. You've got to write it out if you can. Um, and that's just five minutes a day. But choose one thing you're grateful for in the world and write a two-paragraph quick little story about why you're grateful for it. Make it a narrative. We tend to remember narratives. Narratives tend to embed deeper in our brain and so they're more effective. So don't just write, I'm grateful for being healthy. Right, like I woke up today and I stretched and I felt so energetic and it makes me feel so good that I can, you know, for feeling healthy today because yesterday 
wasn't that great and today I feel I can conquer the world and on days like this it always makes me feel like I can accomplish more and so it starts the day well and once I do start well the day goes write a little story each time so that's gratitude it's yeah. super 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 useful and then the third thing I'll recommend is mindfulness because and I don't just mean meditation practice I mean you kept saying being present being present mm-hmm. like we have to be present in our lives and we miss so much of it. And sometimes when our lives are very busy in a good way, we'll have mm-hmm. a weekend that was amazing fun and we won't remember much of what happened because we didn't take a minute to process. We didn't take a minute for, for being mindful in a moment and going, so here I am, I'm standing at this party and having such a great time and the sun's shining. And the way I suggest people do that is do it as a little um, memo to your past or future selves. Uh, past self, for example, Hey, I know you're having a hard time now because you're thinking of yourself back when you were having a hard time, but look where I am now. It gets better because I'm at this party and I'm having such a good time. And Just find a way to be aware and mindful and mindful in all senses. Sight, sound, smell, touch, scent. You know, like all, all of it physiologically, like because that's how we'll remember things better. Like if we incorporate all the senses and who was there and how did I feel and the sun on my skin or whatever it was. Those three things are a great starter kit. I love that you mentioned about gratitude and about actually writing it down. Um, or sometimes I even voice memo because sometimes saying it out loud and then even listening to it back, it can sound really cringeworthy, but a lot of research has shown that it can have such a profound impact. We inherently have a bias to remember the negative things through our day, but actually remembering the positives doesn't always make it in the top top five things that happened in your day. So kind of recording them, I found to be really powerful. I always say to people, if you're going to go on a complaint fest and vent about your day, by all means do that, because it can be important to do that. End with dessert. End with one positive thing that happened at the end, because that that helps the tone not drift towards too negative. Guy, thank you so much for for coming on today. Thank you for having me. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much to Guy for such an emotionally insightful conversation. Now, don't forget to head to Apple Podcasts to subscribe to my Inner Circle for a bonus episode with Guy, where he gives tips on building emotional resilience and maintaining emotional hygiene. Don't miss out because you won't find this exclusive content anywhere else. One last thing, I've created something just for you. It's a 30-day online course to give your well-being journey that extra boost, and it's totally free. Go to sarahandmacklin.com to download it now. There's a link in the description, and I'll see you on the next episode.